Thank you for listening to the Highlander Podcast, where we have conversations about the past, present, and future of the outdoor industry. Thanks to Utah State University's Outdoor Product Design and Development Program for making it possible and for training the future product leaders of the outdoor industry. Learn more about the program at opdd.usu.edu. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Outdoor Recreation Archive, a collaboration between OPDD and USU Special Collections to preserve the history and print materials of the people, products, and brands of the outdoor industry. Follow the archive at Outdoor Rec Archive on Instagram. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Utah Outdoor Association, a business association focused on elevating Utah's outdoor industry through educational programming and events. Their membership consists of Utah's outdoor manufacturers, retailers, outfitters, and guides. Member benefits include networking opportunities, recruitment of talent, and brand promotion. More information about volunteering and membership is available at utahoutdoor.org. On this episode of the History of Gear, Martin Hogue, Associate Professor and Director of Undergraduate Studies in the Department of Landscape Architecture at Cornell University, and the author of Making Camp, A Brief History of the Tent, speaks at our 2023 Outdoor History Summit about the history and impact of tents and shelters. Greetings from uh, Syracuse, New York. Uh, my name is Martin, and I'm uh, really excited to be uh, sharing some of my most recent work on camping. I just want to make sure you see my screen at the moment. Everybody good? Yes. Yeah. Okay, yep. excellent. Yep. Um, so I'm really excited to share um, a little bit about my new book, uh, Making Camp, which um, uh, came out a few months ago. Uh, I'm, I'm trained as an architect, uh, and I've been interested in camping for uh, some time now. What, what really kind of drew me to this topic um, has been to trying to bridge the gap or the kind of uh, that exists between these early uh, images when uh, recreational camping takes hold of the uh, the imagination in the 18, 1860s and the and the Adirondacks to the kind of uh, modern reality uh, of the campground as we know and encounter them uh, today. Uh, how is it possible uh, that over the course of a hundred 150 years, we go from uh, hike, hiking in the woods of the Adirondacks, building a camp from scratch, to uh, now being able to make a reservation for a campsite, often months in advance of arrival, without um, uh, ever having uh, visited that place uh, to begin with. How is it possible that um, uh, Campsite uh, campsites might be so coveted in some of the most popular uh, national parks in the United States to such an extent that one might have to resort to the black market or Craigslist to purchase campsite uh, usage, often uh, several uh, at, at several times the original cost. And of course, how is it possible that someone might end up uh, spending the night in a Walmart parking lot? Uh, so in trying to think about this uh, historical evolution of recreational camping, I broke down the book into kind of eight chapters. And for me, those eight elements um, represent, I think, the kind of um, or the, the kind of in, entire scope of that uh, recreational camping experience. And although I'll be specifically talking about the kind of history and evolution of the tent over this period, I wanted to really briefly 
uh, provide an overview of a couple of the chapters just to give you a sense of the scope uh, of the um, of the book as a whole. Um, we'll we'll begin here with uh, water. Um, the idea that uh, initially uh, it may it was good practice to set up your encampment at the edge of a creek or at the edge of a lake, and you could scoop your water directly uh, from that uh, from the source. And now, of course, the water that we are likely to consume in a campground is much more likely to emerge from uh, from a spigot and a network of underground pipes. Um, back in the 19th century, the ability to build a campfire from scratch under extremely adverse circumstances was often seen as the kind of true test of, uh, of uh, uh, woodsmanship. Um, and of course, nowadays, it's possible to get a cooking flame going uh, in a matter of seconds at, at the push of a single button. And for many campers uh, there, in fact, uh, if you order your pizza from Domino's, you may not even need to uh, cook a, or uh, make a make a fire at all uh, at your campsite. Uh, this notion of uh, enjoying a meal in the outdoors is really one that we associate specifically uh, with the Victorian era picnic um, in more or less this, the same period in the rustic camp of uh, camps of the Adirondacks. One was likely to consume that a uh, similar meal at a series of really rustic uh, tables and seats, as you can see here on the right, that would have been fabricated or, or improvised really from uh, logs and branches that would have been gathered about the campsite. This combination of the seating and table as a single unit was not uh, initially met with a great deal of success and the kind of refinement of that structure um, uh, is really one that occurs uh, in the 1920s and the 1930s, and that form really has not evolved all that much uh, to the present day. But I think uh, the picnic table is one of a number of uh, elements that I think when we go camping in a 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 large campground, we are likely to arrive at a kind of semi-furnished uh, campsite that will be populated uh, with. A picnic table, oftentimes with a, a fire pit, and of course we arrive at very designated uh, lo locations, a kind of address, if you will, uh, within the campsite. So, to my mind, um, one of the arguments in the book is that um, when we think about making camp, a lot of the camp is already made for us when we arrive. And so, for me, the process of making of erecting the tent is one that at least for from a personal level is one that really helps me connect very much with those broader uh, traditions of recreational camping. And uh, although I've, I've had this uh, Sierra tent for uh, over 20 years now, it, it never ceases to amaze me how excited I am about erecting that, that tent every time we arrive at a new campsite. Um, and so, um, even though the, uh, there's been an incredible amount of design evolution uh, in the tent itself over the last century and a half from the kind of modern, you know, cut, cut and duck tent on the left to the Oval Intention and other models. I mean, for, for me, the Oval Intention is the most beautiful tent uh, ever made. And I'm so excited to be able to uh, sort of trace its history. Uh, I did um, want to structure this lecture by making reference to two 
uh, individuals whose papers are now housed at uh, U- Utah State. And I, I do want to um, uh, thank very much uh, Chase and Clint for their generosity and sharing some of the these uh, materials as I was working on the tent chapter specifically. Uh, Bill Moss uh, from Moss Tent Works, who uh, I will be talking about two of his uh, designs for the pop tent and the para wing, and of course, Bruce Hamilton, who, uh, along with Mark Erickson, uh, spearheaded the, the, the uh, design of the Oval Intention Tent uh, at the North Face in the 1970s. And so for me, in thinking about the evolution of the tent, there really are kind of five major uh, ideas that I wanted to reference here and kind of structuring the history of the tent. Uh, and the first one really has to do with this sort of connection uh, of the tent with the ground. The word tent comes from the word from the Latin word uh, tentus, which means stretch. And I think uh, in really provisionally driving those first stakes uh, into the ground, we are making a connection, a very tangible connection to a place for a, a limited period of time. Uh, and of course, uh, in some ways, it might feel uh, when we look at this uh, military tent from the 17th century that the ideal of a well-balanced tent uh, on the ground is one that is firmly anchored. I, I have not counted the number of stakes here that are involved, but you can get an idea that there's uh, at least 25 stakes here that are involved in securing this tent on the ground. Ironically, one can imagine that um, a tent of this sort would have been extremely impractical to move once you had committed those first couple of stakes uh, to the ground. Uh, And early books on recreational camping make a great deal of, uh, or spend a great deal of time in thinking about how to secure a tent to the ground, especially in kind of softer soils, as we can see here in the middle uh, image. And of course, the idea of regulating the surface tension on the tent itself is be, becomes a pretty important con- consideration as well as the tent is being pelted by rain or exposed to uh, you know, hot sun, the surface tension on the tent may need to be adjusted throughout the day. So for somebody like uh, Bill Moss, for me, the, uh, the, the sort of insight that Moss brings to the conversation with the para wing is one uh, that is com- completely antithetical to the military tent we could see at the bottom, one that really needs to be freed in a way from the ground and use these beautiful uh, catenary curves as a way to uh, achieve a kind of structural balance with uh, only four points or four stakes being driven uh, into the ground. Uh, even the, the name of the structure, the para wing, implies a kind of flight. Uh, and of course, uh, Moss himself is really channeling uh, the work of architects like Fry Otto here on the right, whose German uh, pavilion uh, at the Expo 67 World Fair in Mon- Montreal was one of the most important uh, pavilions that were being uh, proposed at the time. And I think um, I, being, a, being trained as an architect myself, I, I want to uh, be able to throw out this these uh, remarks to reference the impact of a number of architects uh, on the conversation about tenting uh, design. And I think even the way that uh, Bill Moss himself speaks about um, kind of drawing lines in space for me feels profoundly architectural and really deeply 
uh, satisfying way to think about the relationship between tense and architecture or or architecture uh, tense as a form of architecture really um, the second topic I want to address is this notion of structural independence of the tent from the ground um, if you were traveling in the national parks um, at the end of the 19th century you would likely to be spending the night in these beautiful uh, semi-permanent camps that were erected throughout the parks, uh, uh, spending night in uh, a fully furnished, uh, fully heated tent, beautiful, very com comfortable beds built on wooden floors. Uh, and of course, uh, if you were a rustic camper around the same period, your tent was like, you were likely to spend the night instead of a, a comfortable uh, tent, as we can see here on the left, much more on the hard ground using a kind of layer of leaves and branches as a form of insulation and padding against the cold ground. Uh, securing the interface between the tent and the ground, I think becomes a matter of great deal of innovation. If we can see here on the image on the right, if your feet could stick out from the tent, um, it was also likely that small rodents or even small snakes might actually find their way into the tent as well. So securing that interface became uh, uh, an important concern. Uh, some of the initial strategies involved the kind of fabric flap that you can see here on the image on the right that could be uh, secured down with a number of, of rocks to help seal the connection between the tent uh, and the ground. And the first uh, fully, uh, the first tent that I was able to find uh, that featured a fully sewn-in uh, cotton duck floor um, was introduced in um, in 1913, uh, and it's easy to imagine here as you can look at the patent drawing how um, really um, uh, poorly ventilated this entire tent would would have been. There's only two or three uh, very very small openings that I can see here uh, in the tent, uh, but I think the first uh, designer to really take fully advantage of the sewn-in uh, cotton floor was uh, a Finnish uh, tenting uh, designer called uh, Jarl Reinhard uh, Longquist, who patented the design for the Sopu tent in 1932. And what the insight that uh, Longquist brings to the conversation is that the floor itself can actually start to resist the outward push of these two bent poles uh, in the tent. And so not only could the tent itself be erected very quickly in a matter of minutes, but the true innovation here is that the tent could actually maintain its shape uh, while being lifted off of the ground. So here, a quick reference to Bill Moss again, who a few years, a few decades later, uh, is really channeling sort of interest in American culture in general for instant things, things that pop. Uh, so with the pop tent, uh, Moss is really marketing to a kind of broad number of audiences, but really uh, imagines a tent. Uh, and this is a uh, image that Clint was able to share and really one of the first moments that I was able to uh, interact with uh, uh, Utah State, and so excited to see this uh, particular image that Clint shared with me last year, and I'm, I'm really excited to be able to show it to all of you here. Uh, but I think Moss imagines a tent that could really uh, pop up 
off of the ground really quickly at the push of a single button, which is a pretty dramatic um, innovation as well. Third uh, topic I want to talk about is this notion of lightness and compaction. Um, of course, the history of the tent is one that date back, uh, dates back hundreds of years uh, to um, uh, military campaigns. And we can imagine with these extraordinarily large camps how much time and effort, how many horses, how many oxen it would have been, it would have required to move these large camps across the landscape. Um, for the rustic camper of the 19th century, of course, the emphasis was one uh, in which you would try to pack in as less as little as possible to the rustic camp and try to employ uh, as many resources that could be gathered uh, about the campsite. So building a shelter uh, locally, building tables, building uh, uh, seats, um, even trying to rely on gathering piles of branches and leaves as a kind of form of insulation in what could be loosely understood as a kind of primitive version uh, of the sleeping bag. And of course, the tent poles themselves represented a particularly interesting challenge here. I think given their kind of lengths, it would be practical to travel with the cotton duck tent. But uh, of course, the poles themselves being so large, it was often recommended to simply cut down a few um, large branches or, or poles from uh, resources that could be gathered about the campsite and use those as structural supports for the tent, or even more minimally, use a series of ropes that could be tied to trees around the tent to give it its full shape. Uh, here, there's, there's a particular uh, innovator that I want to recognize, specifically T.H. Uh, Holding, who is a British tailor and cycling enthusiast whose work I think could be properly credited with uh, really tremendously important insights in terms of uh, the compaction of structural supports for tents. So Holding embarks on this uh, cycling trip at the end of the 19th century, travels to Ireland on his bike, and Holding is really intent on, on carrying uh, his entire set of gear uh, on his bike as he moves about the country. So not only does he uh, devise this extremely lightweight uh, silk tent, I think it, it weighed about 12 ounces, but also uh, proposes to actually segment the structural poles of the tent uh, in ways that could be easily packed uh, on his bike as he traveled about the country. And it's interesting to see that um, when Holdings book came out in 1908, uh, two years later, the same uh, design appears in the Abercrombie and Fitch catalog uh, that Clint talked about uh, in 1910. And so this uh, you know design was clearly uh, innovative enough and was widely uh, accepted uh, in camping circles uh, only a few years later. So the only thing that really remains in terms of reinforcing the integrity of these, um, the structural in integrity of these pole segments was to find a way to actually link them internally with this, you know, tension cable that could increase the structural uh, resistance of the segmented pole. So this is a uh, a design here that I found uh, for an antenna, which would be a kind of similar idea where you have a kind of internal cable that could be made taut at, at both ends uh, of the 
of the antenna. And of course, now with uh, bungee cord, we're able to give a similar uh, degree of incredible structural strength and flexibility uh, to the modern tent, as we can see here, Bill Moss uh, demonstrating on the right. The fourth topic is the uh, importance of uh, new fabrics uh, in the environment uh, of the tent. Of course, um, with uh, the invention of nylon in the late 1930s by Wallace Hume uh, Carruthers and the DuPont Company would have tremendous impacts on all aspects of modern life. Uh, DuPont is one to really actively promote the use of nylon uh, in World War II, trying uh, through their catalogs to really uh, disseminate all kinds of ways in which nylon could have uh, uh, military applications. We can see here a series of illustrations from a 1943 article. We see a hammock, we see um, suits, we see, of course, tents and uh, parachutes and so on. There's a ton of applications there. Uh, and we can see that although those tents would have been extremely uh, wa waterproof, uh, would have been uh, extremely uh, hard to ventilate uh, as well. Um, the architectural historian, Rainer Banham, is one whose insights I think are pretty important here at this stage. Uh, Banham, uh, in this really important article uh, or book really called uh, the, Ar the Architecture of the Well-Tempered Environment, uh, discusses the environmental performance of the tent. And he posits that even though the tent itself would be highly re resistant to rain and would be able to... Uh, um, uh, hold the heat inside of the tent, uh, it would uh, have been very poor acoustically. So the idea of the tent is one that it, it performs environmentally well under a certain uh, number of criteria and, and less well in others. And of course, the, the invention of nylon uh, in 1939 is one that will have profound impacts on the design of the tent. If you compare again to the tent on the right-hand side here, uh, a, a late 19th century tent that's been properly treated with often paint and wax to really improve its uh, resistance. It would have been extremely stuffy uh, in itself. So uh, it's possible to reimagine re Benham's diagram in such a way as a kind of fair weather tent where uh, simply a, a kind of a simple bug screen would be enough to provide uh, uh, a comfortable tenting experience for the night in circumstances that are fair, that are very fair when the weather is nice, when it's not raining, and that at only at critical moments uh, would you have to kind of uh, introduce a second layer to this system that itself would be uh, resistant to rain and, and keep heat uh, inside of the tent. And so for me, the one of the first tents I was able to identify specifically that made use of this double layer tent uh, is the Termo C uh, G66 from 1967. And you can see in the advertisement, the really beautiful way in which that that dash line on the tent on the left is really one that, that heats at this sort of dual envelope. Uh, and that could be adjusted based on the specific circumstances um, um, that are being required uh, of a particular camping experience. Uh, and I wanted to conclude here by kind of eavesdropping, if you will, on a, a really uh, a great moment uh, at, at the uh, offices of the North Face in 19, 
77, a conversation between Richard Buckminster Fuller, who is an architect, uh, colloquially known as Bucky, uh, the guy wearing the suit and the tie. Um, and then, uh, of course, uh, Bruce Hamilton uh, to his right, uh, to his left, really, uh, discussing uh, the uh, new design for a geodesic tent. Um, of course, uh, Hamilton is profoundly influenced in his thinking by the ideas of Buck Buckminster Fuller, which would have been widely available in the whole earth catalog. You can see here on the right, uh, some of those articles uh, in sort of shaping uh, new thinking about, uh, about tents. Uh, Fuller himself is probably best known or best remembered for the American pavilion at the uh, Expo 67 fair in Montreal, my hometown. Uh, and, um, of course, his uh, uh, Bucky's thinking about geodesic uh, uh, dome structures are ones that emerge well before the Expo 67 uh, pavilion. And here we can see the kind of parallels between Bruce Hamilton's thinking and uh, Bucky's own here, which I'm showing. And for here, I want to really recognize uh, Mer Meredith Lynn, who a few months ago uh, emailed me. I think we have a shared passion for the uh, oval intention tent and uh, generously shared uh, really this beautiful page from one of Bruce's uh, sketchbooks. And so I'm really happy to be able to include this in the presentation today. Uh, when uh, Bucky and Hamilton met at the North Face, of course, uh, Bucky was able to uh, explore uh, the entire facility at the North Face. Here we can see his uh, reflection in the screen on the right. Uh, inspecting a series of uh, cut patterns that are going to serve to fabricate a tent at the North Face. And here we can see those shapes being cut out um, that are about to be assembled um, in the tent itself. And for me, when I saw this image here on the right, the first thing that came to mind is another really important work by Fuller, uh, the Demaxion map that you can see here on the on the left, in which uh, the entire globe, the surface of the globe, is unfolded into these, uh, I think, 20-face polyhedron on the left. And so we can imagine a kind of similar way in which the oval intention or any other tent in sort of harsh, partial assembly or partial disassembly would have looked very much the same uh, as the Demaxion map. Uh, but I think this is where, I mean, in a way, the stories begin to diverge and begin to converge at the same time. For uh, Hamilton and Erickson, the, the tent was the ultimate environment they were interested in trying to design. And for Buckminster Fuller, the ambition had always been uh, on a much, much larger scale. And so for him, when you look at the Demaxon map and you see the title of the tent, he really thinks about the earth as a kind of spaceship, uh, as a place, as an environment, as a world uh, onto itself. And for me, uh, I couldn't help but trying to uh, match this image with a contemporary image uh, that Bill Anderson, uh, on part of the Apollo 8 uh, space mission, took uh, of the earth. Um, not only from a spaceship, Apollo 8, but also looking at the Earth as a kind of a spaceship. And um, it, it's easy to imagine that as Fuller himself was at the North Face on that fateful day in 1977, that there was a moment at which 
the kind of scale of thinking that Hamilton and the scale of thinking of Fuller would sort of merge uh, in this beautifully poetic image of these two spaceships of these two worlds uh, here seen in parallel. So uh, with that, I want to thank you again for your attention. I'm so honored to, to be here. And I think just looking in the chat, the uh, uh, number of participants, uh, it's kind of an incredible thing that um, Jason Clint have done here. I want to thank you for your attention. If you have any questions, I think we might have a, a couple of minutes for uh, some Q&A here. So thank you very much. Thank you, Martin. Yeah, we, we have about 10 minutes. So um, if you have questions for Martin, please drop those in the chat and I'll help moderate those. So, and Martin, I should say Katie and Meredith, um, both big fans of, of uh, Buckminster Fuller and the North Face yeah. and their work. They're yeah, no. yeah. as you know. No, I, yes, no, that's very, very cool. You'll be hearing from them shortly. So. If you have questions, again, feel free to drop those in the chat. I guess we should also say, Martin, where can we get your book? Can you can you share a link um, to that? Oh, there, there's some questions there about okay, the book. Yeah. Can you include that in the chat for everyone? Yeah. I, I had a few people texting me, you know, off of the Zoom chat that just said, where can I get this book? So that's the <laughs> I mean, it's on Amazon. Uh, it, it, is, it is widely available. I think it's Amazon and you could find... Uh, I have a copy here. Um, yeah, I'd be happy to share that information with you. I've got my copy here too. So that's Making Camp, a yes. visual history of these most essential items and activities. There are other questions. Feel free to jump in and share in the chat. Yeah, so the book is called uh, Making Camp. A Visual History of Camping's Most Essential Items and Activities. And it's a book that's highly visual, a little bit like the lecture. It's really, there's a lot of historical imagery, and it matches a kind of written uh, narrative to to those images. So I think if you enjoyed the lecture, the, the book tries to be a similar kind of pretty visually intense uh, form of storytelling. There is one question here from Meredith. Um, just about do, do you do any of any camping yourself as a part of your research um, have you tested any of these tents i know that's a big part of meredith and and katie's process yeah no that's a really great question um i we are my wife and i are our campers we are not maybe uh we don't camp that we have not camped a lot this past year or the year before and so for me i think oftentimes thinking about camping uh, occurs in the mind uh, as much as it as it occurs on the ground, and so it's been really kind of interesting to match this, um, trying to find ways to merge the historical knowledge that, I, that I've accumulated over the last few years with our own camping experience. But we're not. Um, it's been we've been fairly limited the last few years to mostly more, mo mostly car camping experiences. But for me, as an architect, I think what first drew me to the practice of of camping is when I checked into a, uh, a KOA campground at the edge of the Badlands about twenty some years ago. It's my was my first camping experience, and I was so surprised to be handed a map of the campground. Uh, and designated the location where I should set up my campsite. That experience of getting that map um, as an architect really 
profoundly surprised me. And I think in a way has been, I've been sort of trying to understand what had so um, surprised me about that experience and really understanding that kind of profound disconnect between what camping looks like now at these campgrounds and trying to connect it back to a much more, let's say, pure or authentic experience at the end of the 19th century. So I hope that answers your question a little bit. Um, another question here about um, your research process. Could you share a little bit about that process? Um, wh what other archives have you utilized? What other resources are out there? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I, one thing that I will say uh, is that I think I um, came across uh, the archive at Utah State very, very late in the process of working on the book. And I find that to be an incredible shortcoming. So I'm really hopeful that over the next few years, I could find a way to really uh, engage with the materials that you've collected. I mean, I'm an architect, so I'm a really a visual thinker. So oftentimes, uh, you know, collecting images, collecting drawings, collecting specifications uh, is what I pay attention to the most and using writing as a way to kind of connect some of those moments in history. So when I worked on the tent, I had maybe an archive of maybe 500, 600 uh, images that I had scanned from various historical books uh, and acquired from various collections across the country. Uh, I tend to put a historical date on each of the images. So when I look in, uh, in my research folder, I have basically a kind of timeline where I can see historically uh, the images in terms of a historical chronology. And that starts to give me some sense of those key moments of um, in the evolution of the tent. Uh, but I think other chapters were similarly set up as well. And so that's where I came up with those kinds of five key uh, moments that I tried to narrate here in my presentation today. So, but a lot of imagery. I mean, I'm I'm a visual guy. I, I love drawing. I love so it it really starts there for me. Um, if, I, I've got a question. Um, are there collections that you um, hope are that exist somewhere, or archives that you hope are yeah. are being protected somewhere, or in someone's basement? Like, what are what's your dream collection? <laughs> A tent materials tent design that you you we don't know if it has a home yet well i i think one of the i mean one of the key collections at the very beginning was at the bancroft uh, at berkeley uh they were extremely helpful there's there's a, a library and there's students susan snyder who did this really great book i think it's called past tense like t-e-n-s-e uh, but also past tense like old tense so that was extremely helpful to engage her and of course the National Park Service's collections are entirely di digitized now, so it's possible to not only look at their drawing specs, but also they have an incredible amount of visual stuff on various parks. And so a lot of the material from the book comes from there. So those two sources were really, really important. And I think, you know, developing this book partially during the pandemic really had to work from home. So that was a bit frustrating. Um, but uh, those are some of the key sources that I was able to rely on. And of course, archive.org has 
all of these older camping books from the 19th century, early 20th, Kephart, all those amazing individuals, all of that stuff is widely available now in a way that it wasn't even 10 years ago, I don't think. Right. A couple other thoughts here. Um, Mike Parsons, um, the author of Invisible on Everest. Yes, very good book. Excellent book. I know in the chat and said he wants to explore UK and European based tent innovation. So that's a fantastic book. Yeah. Yeah. No, he Um, and and I spoke briefly and he's great. Oh, good. Okay. So it seems like there's lots of opportunity there. Um, And then another question on attending, hosting, book signings. Are you going on book tour? Or have you gone on tour already? Yeah. (laughs) I'm actually trying to book a a talk at REI uh, in Rochester here. So I'm I'm really interested of actually sharing this. Uh, I think as an academic, you know, we often think about sort of university talks, but I've been, I think this, this kind of book is, is much more uh, to, has a home in store like REI or sort of others. And so that's, that's the kind of thing I'm interested in doing over the next few months, over the next year, I think. And so uh, I'm, I'm excited about the prospects for that. Perfect. That's great. But no, um, no, 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 no tour, no specific tour. But I'm, I mean, anybody who's interested in chatting, I think this is one of the chapters. But I think other chapters in the book, I've, I've shaping sim- similar talks uh, on the on the sleeping bag, on the campsite, on the campfire. So it'd be, I'm always excited to share that knowledge with with others. That's great. And, and Martin, I did you a disservice. I didn't give you that full introduction, but for those just joining, Martin's an associate professor in the Department of Landscape Architecture at Cornell um, and doing some phenomenal work. I'm going to include the name of the book um, in the chat. I know we've had a few more questions about that. Um, but again, Martin, th- thank you for the time. Um, if people want to reach out to you, I'm assuming they can they can reach yeah. out to you through the chat here. So Yeah. And thank, thank you so much. This is such a great opportunity and such a great initiative. I'm really honored to be a part of this. Thanks for listening to the Highlander podcast. For more conversations with outdoor leaders, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, watch episodes on the Outdoor Product Design and Development YouTube channel, or on opdd.usu.edu slash podcast. Follow along on Instagram at USU Outdoor Product and let us know how you're enjoying the show.